And welcome to another episode of Musings with Matt and Friends. Today I have lawyer, politician, uh, former candidate for governor, executive counselor, Andrew Valinsky on with me. And it's a complete honor to have him on because I got to be completely honest with you. I love this guy. So, um, <laughs> so um, Andrew, thank you for joining me. Oh, it's my pleasure to be here. You, you left out that I raised chickens and a goat. Oh, I, I, I did know that, but I actually I forgot about that fact. <laughs> that That's also very important work as well. <laughs> it, it is. Yeah. Uh, it's good to be here with you. Thank you, Andrew. So, and I, I appreciate you coming on. Um, I, I, I just want to say the reason I say I love you is because there's been two people in, since I've gotten into politics that uh, for politicians that I truly, truly trust. And those are you and Bernie. That's it. <laughs> wow. So that's that's that, rarefied company. So that's why, you know, since I've been doing this, I've been like being a political activist for like five years now. And I've liked a lot of politicians. But when it comes to the people that like I truly trust 100 percent, it's you and Bernie. That's it. <laughs> wow. Well, yeah. thank you. You're welcome. Thank you. And the reason why is because of your incredible consistency. You've been fighting for the issues, you know, um, in your the same issues in your career, um, you know, like um, talking about income inequality and access to health care and, and um, human rights in general. Um, can you just t share with me your story so people know, like, how you got to the point of working, of um, being in politics? Um, well, it wasn't really intentional, um, I hate to say. Yeah. Um, I've been a trial lawyer for 40 years. Mm -hmm. um, I've worked on death penalty cases probably for 35 of those 40 years. Um, and I was the lead lawyer in the Claremont School funding case. Yeah. Um, I definitely want to talk to you about that. <laughs> yeah, almost 30 years ago. Mm -hmm. And, you know, um... I started thinking about it because the legislature and prior governors have completely failed to address the inequalities that result from how we fund our schools. And I've seen yep. that play out in a number of ways, underemployment and in the criminal justice system. And um, I happen to be representing the state's public unions in a case. Um, because former Speaker O'Brien and a bunch of Republicans tried to cut their pensions that they all relied on. And I found myself one, I think it was a morning, before the state Supreme Court arguing for these unions. And I couldn't get one of the judges who I respected mm -hmm. to understand that union members deserve the same pension protections that she had as a judge. Right. And I left that hearing thinking she's a good person, she's really smart, mm -hmm. but the experience of our judges is just so narrow mm -hmm. that they can't get out of their own way. Mm -hmm. um, and soon after that, um, Colin Van Ostern, who was the executive counselor for my district. Yeah, I, uh, I remember voting for him in when he ran against Sununu for governor. I voted for him. Yeah, that would have been 16. So yeah. I, I, he, he announced he was going to make that run. 
which opened up the seat that I now have. Mm -hmm. And I realized that that seat is responsible for uh, approving judges. Right. And so I saw this problem with judges. I saw an opening. Uh, There was more to it than that, but um, it gave me an opportunity to weigh in on that subject. And as an executive counselor, there's a lot that's happened. Mm -hmm. But I realized you know, well into my first term, I've, I've served two terms. Mm-hmm. Uh, well into my first term, I realized <laughs> the governor really sets the agenda. Yeah. You know, as a counselor, you're um, a check on the power of the governor. Right. But the governor decides who to put up for a judgeship, mm-hmm. uh, which direction the state's going in mm-hmm. with the budget, with nominations, all of those things. And, and that's what pushed me to go or try to go further yeah. um but that's that's how i got there yeah all right so basically just injustice fighting injustice is it, yeah is, yeah i mean that's what motivated me and, and you know l- let's go a little further afield on this yeah it's what bothers me about politicians Mm-hmm. me too all too often they're about their own election yep they win, they make some changes, they lose, they've accomplished nothing. And mm-hmm. I've had some very direct conversations with people who've run for office yep. to say, you got to change the message. Mm-hmm. you got to do some educating. you mm-hmm. got to make it, even if you don't win, mm-hmm. you have to make it easier for the next candidate mm-hmm. to yeah. extend the messaging. Um, and I... I confess that I've failed on that with a number of... I wouldn't say you failed. Candidates. I mean, I did it. Yeah. And I did it very intentionally. Yeah. But, you know, a good friend ran against uh, a senator in uh, Senate District 8. Are you in 8? Does I don't even know, I to be honest with you. Yeah, it's I'm, more... I'm in Claremont, London. so... Yeah. Yeah. I think it's more New London and Stoddard. Okay. But she and I had this discussion, and she said, well, I can't get elected if I propose the things you're talking about. And, you know, I said, there's someone who ran before you, and now you've run twice, Mm -hmm. and you're beaten by the same Republican reactionary 70-year-old senator, Ruth Ward, Mm -hmm. um, and you've not made it any easier for anyone to challenge Ward the next time. Mm -hmm. So, you know, whether you win or lose, okay, that's a partial failure. Mm -hmm. But not changing the conversation is on you, Mm -hmm. and that's your fault, and that's an utter failure. Well, one thing I credit you for is you tried to change the conversation in your run for governor. You talked about our inequities in our property tax system in New Hampshire, and you were straightforward. And that's one of the reasons why I liked you so much because you told you told the truth. You know, you talked about how it's completely unfair for a low-income community like Claremont, and that's not the only community, but it's just the example, the one I know because I grew up here and I work at the school here, um, to pay ridiculous property taxes and then not get f- uh, funding from the state while high-income communities like Meredith don't pay high property taxes. You brought that up. Nobody else has ever brought that up. So I credit you for that. Nobody else in my experience anyway. Well, there are 
friends and colleagues were doing it too, but none yeah. of them have been running in a campaign. In a campaign, though. Yeah. 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 No, it was unusual to do in a campaign, and quite frankly, it scared a bunch of the insider right. Democrats. So, do you and think that's why the party came out against me so strongly? Yeah. Do you think um, the reason Feltis won in the primary was because? My inclination was because those high, they didn't want, those high income communities didn't want to see our system changed. Because like, if you looked at the vote, like I was looking at the vote breakdown, like you won here and you won in a lot of the low income places, but Dan won in Manchester and Nashua and those places. Can you, what do you think? Yeah, I think what you're talking about is only part of the answer. Okay. A lot of people don't decide until the last minute and they're they don't go very deep mm -hmm. in investigating and making their decision mm -hmm. and so money matters yeah so in my campaign I, i've raised more than any progressive ever raised i raised six hundred twenty five thousand dollars mm -hmm. uh, for the race which is a lot of money it's more than twice of what marshand raised mm -hmm. but all all the insiders propped up Dan Feltis so mm -hmm. that he raised 1.3 million. Mm -hmm. Now I, I could overcome something of a deficit, mm -hmm. but two to one was just too was much. Too it much. gave him too much TV time. I didn't realize and that he had that much more money. Yeah, yeah. he had a lot of big time mm -hmm. insider donors. So it's just another example of like, you know, Bernie versus Joe Biden. Or Hillary Clinton, like in the, in those primaries, just at a smaller scale, you know, we're, we're at a state, and you know, because um, they get money from big donors, and you know, Bernie Bernie didn't, so it's like it's like a similar situation. Would you say? In in some ways, yeah. I mean, Bernie was able to be competitive because he had so many donors, right? Um, he did. He had. We had. Yeah, we, we smashed the record on number of donors. We had more than 12,000. But at 25 and $50 a pop, yeah, it's hard to keep up with the $7,000 donations mm -hmm. that a number of wealthy insiders made to Dan. Um, I want to shift to the, uh, the Claremont um, lawsuit you did because you're pretty well known in Claremont for that. Believe it or not, especially within especially within the school, can you just elaborate and talk about that situation a little? Yeah, it, um, we filed the lawsuit in ninety one. Um, in it was a constitutional lawsuit um, claiming that the New Hampshire Constitution, which has an education clause, mm -hmm. that that clause means something, mm -hmm. and that it was the state's responsibility to provide a quality education to all of the children in the state through public schools. Um, and in 93, for the first time in our state's history, so more than 200 year history, um, we convinced the Supreme Court to rule that the Constitution meant something, that it wasn't just aspirational, that it was enforceable. So they found that in 93, we thought that the governor might negotiate with us at that time mm -hmm. and we could work things out. We never got through the door. It was Steve Merrill 
um, who recently passed away, mm-hmm. um, wouldn't talk to us, tried to bury us. Uh, and so we went to trial. And in 96, uh, spring of 96, we did a um, six-week trial in Merrimack County, um, proving how unequal education was. We compared Claremont to Lebanon, uh, Allenstown to Rye, Pittsfield to Moultonboro, uh, Franklin to Guilford, and Lisbon to Lincoln Woodstock. Mm-hmm. And those comparisons were very intentional because each pair was the same size school district. Yeah. And so we wanted to look at what a Claremont offered versus what a Lebanon offered and how they paid for it. And in every one of those, one pair had really high taxes mm-hmm. and the other had really low taxes. Mm-hmm. And the lower tax community always provided a lot more. Right. Of course, because they're lower taxed. Well, lower tax and, you know, their property is so valuable right. that they're able to raise a lot more money. Mm-hmm. And they spent it on mm-hmm. their communities because it wasn't that hard to raise. And the Supreme Court agreed with us um, and said, this is wrong. It violates the Constitution and gave the state um, an opportunity to fix it. And by this time, Jean Shaheen was governor. Yeah. And she picked up right where Steve Merrill was and fought us every step of the way. Really? Yeah. Yeah. Um, That's make, that makes me sad. Yeah. Since then, it's been a series of, you know, almost indistinguishable right. on the issue. I mean, there's there are big differences between Shaheen and Hassan and Lynch on one hand and mm-hmm. Benson and... and uh, Sununu on the other yeah. on other issues, right? But on school funding, they no. all fail. That it's just, I mean, and you're told you're totally right. They, I mean, because God, the school funding issue, especially be, being an educator in Claremont, it's such it is the number one issue for to me. And I think in the when you look at inequality in the state, you know, you know what I mean because people. I know a lot of hardworking people here who just they get killed on their property taxes, but then they, but then you, you know, and then it creates situations at board meetings where it's like you're talking about cutting crisis counselors and stuff, and because people are so stressed out from paying their property taxes, it's, it just creates it just creates awful situations for everyone involved you know what i mean for the taxpayer as i'm also i have i just bought a house so i'm also a taxpayer in claremont now too and yeah yeah, and so it creates awful for the taxpayer for the educator and for a low-income community where a lot of kids and people are living in poverty and they need these services in their schools um it's just it's just just terrible situation you know and i that that's one of the the biggest reason why i mean i agree with you on most of the issues but that was the biggest reason why i supported you so much for governor because you're the only one who has ever said that i mean i you mentioned steve marchand and i liked him a lot too but he didn't touch it on it like you didn't saying how you wanted to reform the whole system um steve tried to have it both ways yeah yeah Uh, and you didn't and it might have been the reason you lost but like wouldn't you rather lose and you know try to fight for the right reasons? I mean, I know if I ever run for an office, I will. I look, life's too short. Yeah, you have to be true to yourself and your values. Mm-hmm. And 
I tried in my campaign to do that just as I have mm-hmm. in my professional life and my personal life. Yeah. Um, so it, it chips fall where they may. Mm-hmm. Um, I have to say that campaigning got me to meet folks like you, mm-hmm. and I'm really thankful for that. Um, but by and large, campaigning was a painful experience. Was it? Yeah, uh, particularly during COVID. Well, yeah, your situation was even more heightened because it was during this COVID time, which is still, good God, we had 700 new cases in New Hampshire yesterday, and um, I'm still going to work, and it is an anxiety-ridden experience. I'm not going to, like, trash the school on my podcast because that's not what I do, but it's just scary. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so I, I should tell you, we, we had a executive council meeting today. And the governor gave us uh, an update on where the vaccine stands for New Hampshire. Mm-hmm. Um, and he told us by year end, we'll get 10,000 doses of the Pfizer vaccine. And then shortly after that, maybe weeks later, we'll get between 10 and 20,000 of the Mon- Moderna vaccine. Okay. So 30,000 doses by, say, mid-January, which mm-hmm. is good. Yeah. And it's, it's going to be parceled out with nursing home right. and hospital workers right. and first responders and mm-hmm. teachers. Good. Uh, and educators. Awesome. So you guys should be near the top of the list. It's going to take two injections. Mm-hmm. Um, that are separated by 21 to 28 days. Mm-hmm. Okay. So it, it's a little complicated. It'll be February or so before the first round gets done. Mm-hmm. February? And, so it's still a couple months. Yeah. Yeah. So be prepared for tough times Yeah. between now and February. Mm-hmm. But then February, March, April, May mm-hmm. will start to get back to normal yeah our our, um our board is talking tonight about whether to go remote or not for a while so yeah it's going to be some heated battles tonight and i have decided i could i contemplated going because i and and talking but then i just decided against it and decided i was going to stay home and drink beer instead um but um so yeah, um, the pandemic has been very hard. It's getting very hard for me to turn on the news and watching and listening to people talking about their their, their husband. And I was watching yesterday. I came home for lunch and I turned it on for ten minutes, and there was this lady on who was an ICU nurse, and her her husband and mom both died of COVID within the last week. And it's just like I can't, I can't, I and it. And this disease is just like so strange and it's so hard because like some people you don't even get sick and then some people you're like in the hospital. So it's like, it's just very difficult. Right. And some people become long haulers. Yeah. So the symptoms continue in one way or another for an extended period of time. Mm-hmm. And we don't fully understand how that works. Right. So. The idea of trying to stay distant and safe and wearing a mask, all of that's critically important. Yeah, I mean, I'm telling my kids all day, and you know, I work with special needs kids, so this is all day long. You got to keep your mask on, you got to keep your mask on, you got to keep your mask on, you know, and it's, 
pretty much my pretty much my job for the whole day is you know it's shifted from obviously i'm trying to educate but just making sure everybody stays safe you know not <laughs> well i mean you and i have talked about this how 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 do you play football all right we'll, we'll move. first off i didn't know you were a football guy um yeah, yeah i didn't know that which is good because I don't find I don't find many other progressive football people. So it was nice to hear that you were a football guy. Um, listen, I coach. I love football. I coached this year um, because it's my job, and I they pay me to coach football. And dude, I think it was safe. No, I didn't think it was safe the entire season. Um, we got lucky as far as we know so far because our season's been over for two weeks now nobody got sick and nobody got covid um but that's great yep yep um we did everything we could when they were off the field they had to wear masks they, we had the social distance when you're when they're off the field but you know how football is you're not social distancing when you're playing it's the opposite of social distancing so um and at the beginning of the season for the beginning we did the regional schedule we didn't play we didn't because usually we go to like we had to go to pelham and summersworth and um interlakes and all those places that were far away but we stayed here and played because the divisions are by enrollment so so we stayed here and um we didn't go with our division this year we did regionally so we played like leb hanover Newport, Fall Mountain, until the playoffs, and then the NHLAA decided that they were going to do a normal open playoff. So we ended up playing Laconia and then going to Pelham. Um, we ended up in the we. It was complete, it was it was crazy. Um, uh, I they they pulled the staff and asked us if they thought felt us it was safe to go to the championship game. The whole staff said we don't really feel comfortable, but. Um, we'll go if it's a decision and the board told us to go so we went and um we lost 40 to nothing and we it's been two weeks now and i like i remember that day i was crazy i was i changed my mask three times like we were hand sanitizing every time they came off the field like our trainer had hand sanitizer and every time they came off the field they were they were they were uh hand sanitizing and yeah man it was um it was the it was the hardest football i've been coaching football i played through high school and i've been coaching since 2013 when i was 19 i started at the middle school I've been coaching at the high school since 2015. this was by far the hardest season i've coached because of covid no doubt <laughs> what is claremont doing for winter sports as of right now they're playing um they don't know for sure they have to wear masks and they don't i think i think the edicts right now are masks and no fans um well conquer just voted to uh but that could change sports but that includes wrestling yeah which is like yeah. the same the same boat as football um where you know yeah. what position did you play by the way i'm just curious i was a guard and a running back you played guard and running back that's interesting <laughs> Eastern Pennsylvania. Eastern Pennsylvania. So, so when did what years did you play? What? Um, I it would have been I graduated in seventy three. Okay. Um, God, football must have been way different back then. <laughs> yeah, we didn't wear helmets. You didn't wear helmets. 
I was gonna say. I was gonna say. I think they wore helmets in the seventies. But, yeah. but they're. Um, I mean, as far as concussions and stuff, like we're very, we're very, um, we're very, very strict with our concussion stuff, as we should be, because I love football and I want to see it continue to be a sport, and I'd like to see tackle football continue to be. But if we're gonna do that, then you gotta teach good tackling, and you can't lead with your head, and you gotta take concussions seriously, or else it's not gonna live. <clears throat> All the things you just said, we did the opposite. Yeah, that's what I. That's that's. Yeah. You know, as a guard, I'd run as fast as I could mm-hmm. and put my head in somebody's chest mm-hmm. uh, and leave the ground. Yeah. Um, and it was absolute wrong thing to do. Yeah, we had penalties. You get penalized if you lead with your head in high school football now. I mean, yeah, you do in the NFL too, but like, and that's the way it needs to be because we don't need, um, we don't need um, p- kids getting concussed and having problems for the rest of their lives because football is awesome, but it's not the most important thing in the world. Right. Yeah. I, I couldn't couldn't agree more. But and I have a lot of arguments with other football people about this but you know it is what it is i am a i think that your brain's more important than football and i take football very seriously like it's one of the i take when i'm coaching like i take it super super seriously but um the well-being is always more important for sure yeah yeah that wasn't always the case yeah i gotta say but you know in some places and claremont's probably a little like this um the kids who played football um, were really well respected in the school. Yes. More so than the smart kids. Yes. And I had a choice. <laughs> and, you know, it was a pretty easy choice for me as a, um, mm-hmm. as a senior in high school. I was 16 playing football. Wow. And I started. That's um, awesome. And, and my high school was a thousand kids in my graduating class, so wow, because you were in yeah. Pennsylvania, of course. So yeah, so I got to yeah. put that in perspective. Um, yeah, football, football is amazing for a lot of reasons. I think um, it's a, it, it is as far as sports go. Like I always say, this first off, there's a ton of critical thinking that goes on way more way more than people know when you when you get out as a coach when you get out into it with all the different formations and all the different looks and and all the different coverages you have to do and all the game planning you have to do there's a lot of stuff going on at one time um, also I think that it teaches a team camaraderie that other sports don't teach as much you know what I mean like in football if you everybody has to do their job on every single play or else it doesn't work in a basketball game or a baseball game you know you can have a really good pitcher and um and he can dominate the entire game and you can put a weaker player in the outfield but if but um in bas in uh, in basketball you know you can have a couple players dominate a game but in football it doesn't matter how good your running black is if your line's not blocking or you know it doesn't you know so that's one of the reasons why i you know it's my favorite sport and um but like i said back to this year and with covid i was really i really struggled with it the whole year because it was like and i told like it was like and i talked to my wife about this it was like my football brain was going against my science and political brain you know what i mean so i was like at war with myself all season because i was like 
oh, I'm, I'm preparing for this football game, I'm preparing for this football game, but we probably shouldn't be playing because, you know, there's a deadly disease and, and playing football is exactly what you shouldn't do. Um, lucky, like I said, we got lucky and there wasn't, we didn't have any COVID. We have COVID cases now in the school, but I don't, it wasn't directed from football. I don't think it wasn't any of our players or anything as far as I know yet. Let, so Let me make it a little easier on your brain. Yeah. Um, one way to think about playing ball is in terms of the student's self-esteem. I know. And that was... That was the one of the big checks to play because the kids wanted to play. Like yeah. they're seniors, they're seniors of who were like, listen, like I don't really care if I get COVID. I want to play football. Like I'm not kidding. There are kids who told me that. Well, and for the most part, the kids are going to make it through COVID. Right. It's when they get home and give it to right. Granny and exactly. Mom and Dad. And yeah. It, that's where the problem is. But for I get it. For a lot of a lot of the kids who are playing, this is their outlet. Yeah. There aren't too many places where you get congratulated for being able to hit somebody really hard. It's true. And, yeah. you know, I, I'm going to be honest. I like that part of football. Me too, because I'd rather have them do it on the football field than the street. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah. And I grew up in one of those neighborhoods. Where yeah there was a fair amount of fighting and mm -hmm. you know calling it a gang is probably too formal but it was happening and there was uh, there were problems but and, and i went to a school with race issues right and one of the places where those issues were reduced was on the sports teams because mm -hmm. we all knew each other and mm -hmm. all that's how i avoided the race riots in my high school mm-hmm I've actually, unfortunately, I've, I've um, coached some African-American players and I've experienced racial slurs being yelled at my players more than once. Yeah. Yeah. yeah Still today. I mean, and we know, especially in the era of, of Trump, you know, the, it's, it's still there. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You know, this is a place where I disagree with the governor. Right. I, I think it's systemic. I know. I was so pissed off when I heard him say that because he's, it, there is systemic racism in in New Hampshire. Like, I've seen it. <laughs> there are instances of overt racism, the name-calling and the, mm -hmm. the badgering and that kind of thing. But systemically, it's pretty clear that health care outcomes, income, access to jobs, access to the housing market, all those things are affected. Uh, by race and we need to recognize that and deal with it and the first way to start dealing with it is to acknowledge it exists exactly which Sununu didn't do I am uh, have to be honest I'm very nervous about how in New Hampshire the Republicans are in charge in every every uh, place of government right now how it's gonna be how it's gonna go down it's I, I just I'm worried <laughs> especially being an educator I don't see any help coming down the pipeline from the state no, they're going to continue to divert money from public to private schools um, Great. when they don't support publics well enough as it is. Yeah. And you know, a lot of this is on the Democrats. Oh, I know. The Democratic I know. Party basically owned it in. There are a few people who worked hard and, and bucked the trend, but but not all Republicans are alike, even in this day I know. and age. 
I don't know. Yeah. I know. You can't paint everybody with the same brush. I know. Right. But, but I don't know. It's so, still it's still nerve-wracking. <laughs> well, we, we um, as part of the council meeting today, <clears throat> we had to swear in the legislature. Mm-hmm. So we went to the Senate first. They just, they're a smaller group, so they got ready first. Everyone was wearing a mask. Okay. Every senator, Democrat, Republican, they're all wearing a mask. We swore them in, went back to our meeting. House was ready. We went out. 60, 70 House members refused to wear a mask. Really? Yeah. And they're, 60 to 70? Yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah, so there were, you know, there are 400 members in the House, maybe two-thirds were there, um, and then a bunch will get sworn in tomorrow remotely um, by us. But there were a fair amount without masks. The House tried to segregate them, keep them away from everyone else, mm-hmm. but not everyone was willing to comply with that. Mm-hmm. Um, and they just had this... The Republicans had a House caucus, and a couple of people caught COVID there. Yeah, I think um, I read that. And so there were a lot of people who were concerned. And the age of the legislature is up there. Right. The average age is well into the 60s. Right. And, you know, they're entitled to be a little more careful yeah. rather, rather than less careful. And you have a guy like Al Baldacero from Londonderry not wearing a mask and actually smoking in his seat. What? They were, you can do yeah. that? Well, they met on the uh, lacrosse field in front of the Whittemore Center at UNH. Yeah. And they were supposed to be respectful of the facility. Mm-hmm. And there's a photo I saw of Baldacero in his seat, masked down with a cigarette in his hand. Uh, on the field and it's an artificial surface so it's like plasticky right 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 and i've seen yeah been on those fields before yeah you don't you don't want cigarettes on those no no good god all right um so man there's just so many things okay so i did a i did a um essay recently for school for college about uh, childhood trauma and its connection to income and wealth inequality. And I actually did a podcast about it too, because um, talking about how, because I've I've gotten a lot of education in trauma and about how it like re- it rewires your brain and you know it makes the amygdala part of your brain fire all the time and your rational thinking part of your brain not um, fuck not in charge of your brain. And I just think about. The, even the families that I serve, um, I think about how they don't they, they struggle financially. They don't they don't have their needs met. They don't have adequate. Um, they don't have. They don't know if they're gonna have food on the table. They have crappy health insurance. Like um, and how and then you know some of them work 50, 60 hours a week. Um, so I, I think about how. If we could fix the income inequality issue or just address it somewhat, how that would just, and that's one of the reasons why, because you talked about it and Bernie talked about it. Can't think of another politician that's ever even brought it up, honestly. Um, yeah, it was, 
It wasn't high on Dan's list. No, I can't. And like Biden doesn't talk about it. Like national politics, like Bernie's the only one who's even ever talked about it. Like, um, like you you'll get some Democrats that'll acknowledge that exists, but it's not like a central part of their campaign. And you know when when the top when the top one percent owns more wealth than the bottom 92 percent or whatever it is like um there's that's like i just don't understand how we can't come together and address that like and it's not it's not about um making sure that you know it's not about the ceos making the same as the worker like it's not what anybody's saying it's saying that the gap should be closer so um can you talk about income inequality yeah um it's it's a big issue that affects people in in many many ways yeah um there are a, a number of people run for office who are willing to talk about it but yeah. not willing to propose much not willing to yeah. do much um you know there's a, a national campaign built around the idea of 15 dollars per hour as a minimum wage right which i'm totally for right yeah so, New Hampshire doesn't have a minimum wage, so we default to the federal, which is seven and a quarter. Which is and just abysmal. It's abysmal, yeah. but you know, you've got all this energy around $15, and the Democrats in the state legislature passed bills for $12 an hour, and then Sununu vetoed them. So, and they knew Sununu would veto it. Yeah. I just don't understand the rationale. Like, how is that a good choice? Like, I know you probably don't either, but um, yeah. I just don't understand. Like, and Dan was one of the leaders of the twelve dollars. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's not good enough, but it's better than seven twenty-five. It it is, but if it's going to be vetoed anyway, right? Why not do the right thing and just do the, the right fifteen? Thing. Yeah, um, and instead of compromising yourself, right? So part part of this is recognizing the difference between cost and investment. Mm -hmm. You know, we in New Hampshire and a lot of other states view every state expenditure as a cost mm -hmm. and you minimize your costs. Mm -hmm. But sometimes when the state spends money or requires others to spend money, it's an investment and you nurture your investments mm -hmm. because later on they come back to help. Right. So you mentioned trauma uh, in childhood, if you don't address it too often, it leads to bigger problems as adults. Yep, like drugs. <laughs> drugs or sometimes those problems are criminal justice problems. Yep. And so I, I was speaking to some people at the state police today about the idea of early intervention warding off a $37,000 a year prison term. So if you if you spend 10 or 15 now to get a kid out of trouble right you may not have to spend 37,000 exactly okay. you're going there's apps you know there's more to it right right but it's just that stark right um and like cuz i know the biggest arguments are always about well how do you like when we talk about like the minimum wage or, or healthcare or anything, it's always, well, how do you pay for it? How do you pay for it? And it's like, A, like, especially nationally, like universal healthcare, like we pay for so many other things in our, in our national budget where, you know, we can pay for it. 
and B, it's going to make your society healthier and you're going to get benefits from that too. You know, you know what I mean? Yeah. And you know, we don't often look beyond our own ways of doing things. You know, what we do is the outlier compared to other civilized industrialized nations. Right. And you know, we say that and all of a sudden you're a socialist or a communist. Well, that that was the next that was my next thing to you because to me, the reason and I'm just using I'm using Bernie as an example because he's the one the reason that he wasn't ever able to be in a general election is because of the socialist thing. I, I firmly believe that's the biggest one of the biggest reasons the socialist thing and the I mean and I also think that the corporate elite would do or would did whatever they could to make sure that Bernie Sanders didn't um, the corporate elite did whatever they did to make sure that he didn't get there and they succeeded um, but he called himself a democratic socialist and the way I describe a democratic socialist is um, based on what he said, you know, basically not every sector or every party or society can run like a business. There's certain parts like healthcare, education, prisons, social services that can't be run like a, like a business. They have to be run in order to meet the needs of the people. And, um, currently we run them like a business. And so, cause like with healthcare, you know, um, with insurance companies, they're trying to make as much money as they can. And I'm not talking about doctors and nurses. I'm talking about insurance companies and people getting the healthcare that they, that they, that they need. Um, and that's essentially how I view democratic socialism. But for some reason, you know, and it could, it could be messaging. It could be, I don't know. They just get, they hear that word socialist and that's it. It doesn't matter what else you say. And I don't know how, I don't know how to get, I don't know how to beat that. Cause I've been trying to for five years and then you probably have for a lot longer. Like, I, I just don't, I, I don't know. I don't know how to like, I'm not a communist. Like I don't think the government should own the grocery store down the street, but I do think and that the government should, you know, work, look out for working people and make sure people have health care. Like, you know. So, I, you know, some of this comes down to whether you believe government has a, a valuable role in society mm -hmm. or not. Right. And, and that's that's what's articulated. But then even those who don't believe who say they don't believe government has a role they're often the ones getting corporate assistance. Right. So they're able to manipulate mm -hmm. the, you know, the wheels, the levers of power uh, to benefit themselves. Right. Um, I'm, I'm assuming you know who George Carlin is? Sure. He did a bit. Have you ever seen his bit, The Big Club? Have you ever seen him? Have you ever yeah. seen? So he, he did a bit that's like three minutes long and um, he talks about how basically like the 1% he's basically saying the 1% does not want people to be able to critically think they want you to accept lower jo jobs for um, lower pay and and um, less less benefits and they don't want you to be able to critically think and sit at the table sit at your table at, at night and figure out that you know the system has been screwing over the middle class since for 30 for last 30 years and the the corporate elite is so is so powerful that they 
like you said, they move the levers in order to in order to um, keep the status quo. And you know, he's like, he said at the end, he's like, it's a big club, and you're not in it. You and I, we're not in the club. So I mean, it's really simple, but I think I feel like it really describes like what you're going up against. I mean, and I know life's complicated, but is it that simple? Is it is it a, is it a big club? Um, I don't think it's that simple. Yeah. Um, it feels that way sometimes. Yeah. But there, there's, there's a lot at play. I know. And in, it's in the club, outside the club. But Trump has been an expert. Yes. Let's talk in, about Trump. In playing people's desire to become a member of that club. Yep. Even though it's never going to happen. Right. So, uh, you know the story about the Oreo cookies? Wait, no. Trump's got a plate of Oreo cookies. Oh, yeah. Oh, the big Oreo cookies. Yeah. Yeah, he gives 10 of them to his friends. Yeah. Um, and tells the working guy, look out, the other working guy's going to get their cookie. Right. Well, that's like the, the calling Mexicans criminals and rapists, right? That's, that's what he's saying, you know. Yeah. Look at that over there. He's their problem. Um, right. How do you feel about the incoming Biden administration? Um, my my wife, I think, put it best. Um, she described Biden as a transitional president. Yeah. Um, transitioning back to a norm. Yeah. That is respectful. Mm-hmm. That understands the role of a president that's not all about making himself personally rich right that's not about overtly lying those are very low standards it is very low her description was not expecting a lot yeah Uh, i'm not expecting a lot either but it's good that i'll have a president that listens to doctors and scientists again you know exactly so it's that level of of return to yeah standards that biden will introduce and and that's good that's not going to move us no he's he's i don't think he's going to uh do much in terms of real systemic change though i don't i don't i I expect him to do nothing yeah yeah Um, which is unfortunate except for maybe climate i hope maybe he's aggressive with climate but he just appointed john Kerry to be i know changes are i know Um, Kerry doesn't have a strong background in climate right. change. Right. Um, there are others who do. Right. Um, been great to have a Green New Deal person. Yes. But again, that's another thing that the idea that has so much baggage. Like I'm 100% for the Green New Deal. I've read it and I'm all about it. But you can't like Biden. That's one of the reasons why people like, oh my God, it's a great like you're gonna. Stop using planes and all this crazy shit, like you know, like um, it, it, in fear mongering. And you know, Biden has a client. I will say I've read his climate plan, and it's not quite the Green New Deal, but it's you know, it's not. Again, it's it's not awful. It's, not awful. it's pretty. It, in far of his plans, it's probably the best one that I like personally. Um, it's pretty aggressive. It's relatively aggressive, um, but um, you know, like. And at this point, we should be aggressive with climate change because, like, come on, right? You know, yeah. and, you know, I, I'm glad we won't have a president that denies his existence anymore. But, I mean, we should be. It shouldn't. 
we should be aggressive because we got what eight years max in order to do this and i'm I, you know to be honest with you like like i i have i've grim i'm grim about this because i just don't see how it's going to happen well that's was one of the points of difference uh between dan feltis and me uh dan supported the use of fracked natural mm -hmm. gas and i oppose it yeah yeah when he supported the construction of a pipeline uh, to advance the use of fracked gas, along with that came a, a ton of union endorsements mm -hmm. and union money from mm -hmm. trade unions. I, I get it. Mm -hmm. uh, each of me thinks cynically that's why he took the position he did. Of course. Um, but uh, the fact is it was a bad idea, it was uneconomic, it was never going to happen. Um, and the company that was going to build at Liberty Utilities has since backed off. Mm -hmm. uh, so that was, you know, our, our campaign came down to uh, support education and no pipelines. Yep. Uh, and big differences between Dan and me on those policy issues. Um, in his, and but, he, he wasn't going to change the property tax system. No. No. Nothing. No. And but too many people allowed uh, Dan to get away with um, making just very general statements mm -hmm. that he was going to do better on so many things and he lost by 31 points it wasn't even close yeah, <laughs> yeah so 2 to 1 is what Sununu beat him by yeah I, I, it was like 65 to 31 or something like that right yeah. it wasn't yeah. it wasn't even remotely close and I know that you would have at least given Chris a run. I know you would. Like I think about that all a lot. A lot. I don't know that I would have beat him, but it yeah. certainly would have been a better fight. Um, yeah, it would have been a fight. It would I, exactly. It would have been a fight. He didn't even, you know. I don't even. He didn't even do anything against Sununu, and there's so many things you can try to pick him apart on, and he didn't even do it. I think he tried. I, I think he was dying. Maybe I'm being a little unfair, but... Yeah, there were some things that were out of his control, but we are very different people. And, you know, when people saw us debate or heard us in forums together, our differences just in style and personality came through and, mm -hmm. and in substance. You know, I, I, I was direct, as you said at the outset, on a bunch of issues that Dan would waffle on. One of the ones that, quite frankly, bothers me uh, to this day is we had a uh, debate on Channel 9 and I happened to get the question first about the death penalty. I think I watched uh, that. And I, yeah. I described it as racist and I would, mm -hmm. if the council approved it, I would have commuted uh, the one black guy on death row in New Hampshire's death sentence to life. Uh, and Dan agreed with me. Mm -hmm. And then within a week of winning the primary, he backed off on that mm -hmm. and, and said he wouldn't have commuted the sentence. And that's something you, you can be for the death penalty. You mm -hmm. can be against the death. You can't be both. No, exactly. And it, I, Dan lost a great deal of credibility when he did that. Yeah. And I vote, I voted for Dan over Chris. I mean, but of course, of course. Um, yeah, exactly. I had to, but I mean, I knew, I kind of, I pretty much knew he wasn't going to win. Like, and then when they, they called it right off the bat, like it didn't even, it was, it wasn't even like, it wasn't even, I feel like in order to be Chris, you have to, you have to have a fighting message because he's got a stranglehold on the governorship in New Hampshire right now, unfortunately.
Yeah, he does. Yeah. Um, one, one, you mentioned fracking, and I remember it brought this to my mind. I was remember watching the debate between Biden and uh, Trump, and they, they, they challenged Biden on fracking, and he was like, "Oh no, I'm not. I'm a. I'm not against fracking. I'm not against fracking." And it's like, I wish you were against fracking because fracking's terrible. (laughs) Like, and Bernie's against it, but like, again, he's one of the only ones. Yeah. It's um, it's terrible for the environment. So it, when you say that Biden is pretty good on the environment, I know. Now I'm thinking yeah. about it. It's like, but he's for he's fracking. Fine. Fracking's awful. Yeah. So on some issues he's fine. On other issues, you know, it's like Obama and clean coal. Um, right. There's no such thing. Right. <laughs> and and I worked hard to help get Obama elected and. Um, oh. really proud of that effort. Um, I like Obama a lot. There was things where I wish he would have, I wish he would have been more progressive, of course. And I, but, um, you know, I'm reading his new book right now and it's, I mean, he's a brilliant guy. I'm not going to deny that. He's a, huh? How do you like the book? I like it a lot. I'm only like two, it's like 700 pages and I'm only like 200 pages in, but, um, but um, and you, I've only gotten through him beating Hillary in the um, 08 primary and stuff, and how hard how hard that was, and uh, um, and um, because she was such a powerhouse even then, he w- he was a small guy compared to her then when that first when that first started, and but he he's a he, he like I said, I wish he would have been more progressive on you know the like. Certainly on, um, I think he tried to meet Republicans in the middle too much sometimes, you know what I mean? Like, and I want, I want to come together, but they weren't going to come together with him no matter what he did. So I wish he would have just been more progressive and been more bold. And cause I think he is a progressive at heart. He didn't really govern as a progressive, but I think he is at heart. You know what I mean? Um, but yeah, there's no such thing as clean coal. <laughs> Yeah, so I, I did legal work uh, in that primary in New Hampshire, Massachusetts, and Pennsylvania. Yeah, um, and I, I felt very strongly about it, and um, I was glad he won and became president. And yeah, I wish there hadn't been another primary with uh, Secretary Clinton. Yeah. Um. I think another thing that I will criticize Obama on is is the wars. He didn't get us out of the wars, you know. He didn't. He, you know, I want. I'm sick of we. You know, he. I know he kind of tried to get out of Afghanistan, but then again, you know, he started another one with Libya. You know, so like, um, so, so I think that that's honestly the biggest thing that I will criticize him on is that he kept the the war machine going and you know he kept the military industrial complex making their billions and billions of dollars you know yeah 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 it's yeah but and trump's only exacerbated that woman in his four years yes yeah and just reduce the standing of the u.s across the world big time i mean and i think biden will help that a little bit but um yeah he will. Um, I know that most of the world's pretty happy that he won the election. Um, by the way, are you at all surprised what Trump's doing right now, denying the results and doing all these lawsuits? Are you surprised at all by that? I'm not surprised. 
No, I'm not. Uh, New Hampshire today actually certified our election results. Um, the governor and council actually do that. Mm-hmm. So we add an item on our agenda to accept and approve. Mm-hmm. So we're on on paper now. All right. Uh, yeah, I'm not surprised. It's mm-hmm. a kind of um, uh, narcissistic, uh, unpatriotic uh, behavior that I expect. Yep. All right. I have to go do a home visit in like half an hour and we've been going for 56 minutes. I mean, I feel like I could talk to you all day, but we obviously can't do that. Uh, my last question, what's next, man? Uh, we're deciding. Okay. Um, so stay tuned. We're, um, uh, I've left my law firm. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, I don't want to be in a large law firm with, Lots of responsibilities. I want a little more flexibility. So we'll see. Um, if you hear of any good nonprofit jobs, I'm uh, I'm open to a leadership position. Awesome. Um, and if you ever decide to run for anything again, I'm with you. Okay, man. I appreciate it. You take good care and stay safe. I will, Andrew. Thank you for coming on. Oh, it's my pleasure. Bye. Take good care. Bye-bye.